Hey, happy Memorial Day. Thanks for being at church among the brothers and sisters uh, this morning. Uh, when you sat down, you may have seen one of these uh, little cards in the chair next to you. We'd love for you to pick it up and look at it uh, with me. Uh, this is going to be a great opportunity for us to serve our neighborhood. Uh, it's called Bayou City Night. And June 12th, we are inviting our neighborhood to come and be together with us. And the, the thing that you'll see under the main title is it's the Amazing Chemistry Show. Uh, we invited this husband and wife to come and be our guests last fall uh, with our Overflow Conference, a, a, a great conference that many of our folks put on uh, for women who are parenting alone. And this uh, man and his wife came and it is amazing. I'm talking like straight up internet amazing, like YouTube amazing. Uh, and his ministry is really to bridge the gap between science and the creator. And he does that in a really, really fun way. And so we're inviting our neighborhood to come and see that and have a great time with us, the children of our neighborhood, their moms and dads. But we want to make sure that your kids are there. When I was watching him last fall do it, I grieved that my kids were not there because they would get a kick out of it. And a, they might learn something about their creator. And so I want you to bring your kids. And then while you're there, uh, let's serve our neighborhood together. One of our partner organizations, uh, Cornerstone Ministries uh, here in Spring Branch, will be bringing van loads of kids uh, to be with us. So not only do we need lots of kids there, we need lots of people to help serve. Uh, so if you have kids, bring them there. And then while they're there, you serve. And then if you don't have kids, come and serve with us just a couple of hours. Uh, you've heard me say many times that the best part about our church is the people. And the only way you get to see if that's true by, is by getting to know the people. But it's hard to get to know one another sitting in rows. But serving together is a great way to do that. So you can see the registration information on the back there, bayoucityfellowship.com backslash bayoucitynight. Uh, so register to uh, serve. It's going to be a great time. Open up your Bible to John chapter 2. We've been making our way through the Gospel of John. We finished chapter 1 and now we are on our way to chapter 2. You can also look to the back of your listening guide for a place to write a few things down. In two weeks, Amanda and I will celebrate our 17th wedding anniversary. So I've been thinking a lot about 2002. Uh, we had zero dollars headed into our marriage. Amanda was graduating from Texas A&M in May. And, uh, oh, we got a boo. Oh, geez. I don't know that you're going to be able to go to church here. We got a, we got a lot of Aggies. Uh, they're very proud. Unity. Uh, she was graduating from that university. I was still uh, in school. I had about a year left of college. And uh, uh, she, so she was getting ready to start her first uh, full-time job after she graduated. After we got married, I was making $12,000 a year as a part-time ministry assistant because that's why you go into ministry for the lucrative uh, finances. And so all that to say, we had $0. In fact, about six months before we got married, I took a second job at IHOP uh, to make a little uh, spare change. So that just shows you our financial situation. Uh, we, we got married, uh, but she hadn't started work yet. So we really didn't have much of a paycheck. After we got back from our honeymoon, uh, this is the only time in my life that I've bounced a check. It was our rent check. So I said, go big or go home. Um, unless you can't pay for that home, then you don't have anywhere to go. 
But thank God uh, for people's generosity around the time that you get married. We had had a wedding shower, a couple of wedding showers, so we registered for gifts. We went to Dillard's and we went to Bed Bath and Beyond. And thankfully, a lot of people had gone to Bed Bath and Beyond and bought us toothbrush holders, a, a lot of toothbrush holders. Something went wrong with their system, and so we got like 30 plus toothbrush holders. Never in our lives have ever put our toothbrush in a holder. But when you got that gun in your hand, you just start shooting the stuff that you really don't need. So when we received all those toothbrush holders, they still haunt my dreams, honestly. That's how many we got. When we got too many, we obviously took the holders back that we didn't need. And at that time, this was the dark ages, 2002, Bed Bath & Beyond would give us cash back. Not store credit, but literal cash back. And if it were not for Bed Bath & Beyond return toothbrush holders, we would not have survived financially for the first month of our marriage. This is a true fact. So buy people toothbrush holders when they get married. That's, some, that's the whole point of today. Right? So thank God for those gifts that we got at our, at our wedding. Uh, that's what the message is about today. Jesus is going to go to a wedding. And he, uh, he may have showed up giftless, uh, but he did not leave uh, without having given a very important gift uh, to a young couple who was getting married. John chapter 2, let's read together verse 1. Hopefully you have a copy of scripture in front of you. If not, pull it up on your phone. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. We're going to talk about that. That felt offensive, but we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get there in just a second. Everybody ready? Verse five. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples and stayed there only a few days. So back in verse 1, it says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. That's not too far from Nazareth. Actually, historians aren't exactly sure where historic Cana of Galilee is located. You can go to Israel. You can see some places where it might have been. But it's sort of a mystery. But we know that it's close because Mary has a responsibility here. So there are these are people who Jesus' family has been connected with. She feels responsible for the fact that they have run out of wine. So that she's not just an invited guest. It could be family. It could be cousins. It could be cousins of cousins. It could be just have been the next town over. And because they were, these were small villages, uh, they would journey to Jerusalem together. But this is a family that's known to Jesus, not too far away from Nazareth where Jesus has grown up. And it says that it was the third day. Now, if you go back to John chapter one, verse one, John mentions days. And if you add them together, 
and you kind of piece them together, uh, this would be the seventh day, which is interesting because there in chapter one, in the very first paragraph, John talks about how Jesus is the creator of the whole world. That wasn't just a responsibility of God the Father. God the Father had delegated the creation responsibility to his son Jesus, and God created the earth in Genesis chapter one and two in seven days. So John is playing on that. And it says later that this is the first of the signs that Jesus did. I think I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, but the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels because they give a synopsis of Jesus' life. They start in the beginning and they make their way through the timeline of Jesus' life and they end with his ascension. John does that, but he does it for a different reason. His gospel is a, a mix of synopsis and sermon. So, Where Luke says at the beginning of his gospel, he wants to give an orderly account to a man, a friend of his named Theophilus. John says, I want to give you an orderly account, but I have a very spiritual goal. In fact, later on at the end of the gospel, he's going to tell us what that spiritual goal is. That that we would, same as today, see, understand, and come to believe in Jesus and receive him. So because he's also preaching a sermon as he writes this gospel, he has seven points. There's seven signs. You can see the seven signs. I brought them on a list here. The first one is the one we're talking about today, turning water into wine. The next one is later on in chapter two, cleansing the temple, then healing the nobleman's son, healing the lame man, feeding the multitude, healing the blind man, and raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. These are the seven signs of the gospel of John. Uh, Jot those down so that when we get to these signs, you will remember John has essentially dug a hole in his gospel, laid this signpost in the ground. And what's the purpose of a sign? To point us to what's ahead. And for John, the signposts go in the ground to point us to the truth that Jesus is God's son and God's savior. And our responsibility is to put our faith in him. And this is the first sign that he's done on the third day at a wedding. If you think that a sign of a sign from heaven, it would be odd to send that sign to a small wedding in a place that history mostly has not remembered. It makes more sense to send those signs to Jerusalem. But the very first one takes place among people who honestly didn't even really notice the sign. Only a few servants and his disciples. On the third day, he and his disciples are at a wedding. And then it says in verse 3, When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. Now, if you were getting married in first century Israel, there was a process. The first process was an arrangement. It doesn't necessarily mean that your family's arranged the wedding for you and you didn't have any choice. You could have had a choice. You could have fallen in love. But there was definitely a family agreement. Uh, Both sides had to come together and they would sign a contract. We call our commitment engagement before marriage. They called theirs betrothal, or at least that's how we translate it. It was engagement plus some. Because there was a contract, if you wanted to break your betrothal, you essentially had to go to the court. If you break an engagement today, it's very painful. It's a deep wound, but you don't really have to let anyone know other than the people that you may have invited to the wedding. You don't have to go to the courthouse. You don't have to make it official because we don't have that level of ceremony and contract in our engagements, but they did. So when Mary is pregnant, 
at the word of the angel Gabriel through the Holy Spirit with Jesus, born of a virgin, and Joseph is thinking about divorcing her quietly, what he means is in their betrothal, he's just going to go down to the legal courthouse and, and, and end this betrothal in a way that doesn't make that big deal of it. So you have your betrothal, and at the wedding contract signing, you would have set a wedding date. In the meantime, uh, the groom is preparing everything. The groom is preparing uh, a house. A lot of times uh, you would move in to a, a new addition on the father of the groom's house. So the father of the groom would have a house and each son that got married, they would just add a room, add a room, add, uh, uh, expand a wall. And so there would be a preparation. That's why when Jesus says in John chapter 14 that he's going to prepare a place for us, where is he preparing that place? In the father's house. So it's a picture of marriage, just like a groom would go back and prepare the father's house to bring his new bride to live there. That's what's happening. So when the groom was all finished and the date of the wedding had arrived, the groom with all his friends would travel to her house. If it was a short distance, if they lived just in that village or a village over, they would go in the evening and they would go with candles and lanterns and and beautiful torches and they would arrive and they would get the bride and all of her friends and then there would be this amazing processional in the dark, all lit up back to the wedding feast. And there, there people would say some words. There they would receive a blessing from both sets of parents. There may be some legally binding language that would be there. And then they would celebrate and they would celebrate big time. In fact, some of their wedding feasts lasted days and days and days. If you went to a wedding in first century Israel, you didn't have a lot going on uh, the next day. It wasn't like in our day, which is like, I want the bride and groom to see me. And then I want to leave as fast as possible. I want credit for being here and then I'm out of here, right? Not at first, uh, first century wedding feast in Israel. You were there to celebrate until the celebration was over and they were celebrating and they ran out of wine. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. Now, this would have been an embarrassment to the groom in this case, because the head waiter goes to the groom uh, later on, uh, but it would have been an embarrassment to the whole family. You've invited people to come and celebrate with you, and before the celebration was over, you've run out of the required things to celebrate. Now, I grew up Baptist, and Baptists for a long time have been known for one thing, being jerks. Number two, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I mean, that's true, but uh, I was making a joke. Second thing that they were known for is not drinking alcohol. It comes from uh, back in the 1830s when there were saloons all over the place. There were saloons lots of places, not just out in the wild, wild west. And there was a temperance movement. Well, lots of different denominations got on board with the temperance movement, but eventually a lot of them kind of went back to some kind of middle ground, which is like, don't get drunk. That's what the New Testament says. But the Baptists never went middle ground. In fact, they just leaned into it heavy uh, more and more. And they became known as people who didn't drink alcohol. And so in the church that I grew up, a pretty Baptist, uh, you just didn't drink alcohol. So you can imagine that we didn't talk about this story very often. (laughs) If we did talk about it, the pastor would do lingual gymnastics to tell us that it was really just the equivalent of Welch's grape juice that Jesus was uh, turning into wine. I'm not sure that that holds up uh, with history and uh, Bible scholaring, Uh, but... uh, you, you maybe heard the joke about uh, uh, the fisherman. Um, somebody said to the fisherman, why, why do you always bring two Baptists uh, fishing with you? And the fisherman says, well, if I only bring one, he drinks all my beer. If I bring both of them, they pretend that neither one of them drinks beer. <laughs> 
So, no Baptists at this wedding. Because they have all run out of wine. By the way, uh, the New Testament uh, would would say be filled with the spirit and if your drinking prevents you from being filled with the holy spirit of god and exhibiting the fruits of the spirit of god then don't you can't drink that much right uh, know yourself know the scripture know the spirit of god and i think you'll be fine so they're out of wine verse four what does that have to do with you and me woman jesus asked my hour has not yet come Now, that does feel offensive, doesn't it? But um, Jesus is not being offensive, and Mary did not take it as offensive when he says this. The reason we know this is because later on in this gospel, Jesus is suffering on the cross. Same woman is there watching him suffer, his mother. And one of his last words is given to her care. And he says to John, who wrote this gospel, son, Behold your mother. I'm entrusting my mother to you. And then he says, woman, behold your son. So we can read it in the context of the, uh, of, of the wedding of Cana of Galilee. And it does feel offensive. But you, you, there, there's no way that Jesus is being dismissive while he's giving his life for the salvation of people as an offering to God in all that suffering and is being dismissive to her. When he calls her woman, it is a term of endearment to him. It does not read that way to us, but there is no offense in Mary's heart or mind when he says this, just as there was no offense to her when he called her this from the cross. But he says to her, this doesn't have anything to do with me. This problem that the wedding is, is, is out of wine Why are you coming to me? I don't have any role in this. It could be that Mary has known from the moment that she was pregnant with with Jesus. Remember, she found out she was pregnant because of the angel Gabriel. She was not pregnant by natural means. The spirit of God overshadowed her according to the will of God. And she became pregnant, virgin birth. So she's known from the moment of inception that her son was special, the Messiah. But it's been 30 years that Jesus has just been very ordinary. He's been in her home just as her other children have been. He probably worked carpentry just as her other sons did with their father, Joseph. Now he's gone to be baptized by John the Baptist. We know from the other gospel, he's been tempted by the devil, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Something feels differently. And it could be that Mary is using this problem as an opportunity to push him into the limelight. Jesus, we know you're special. Why Why don't you prove to all these people that you're special? And he says, this doesn't have anything to do with me. And my hour has not yet come. That's his way of saying, this is not what I came to do. This is not my primary purpose. Doing a miracle like this, although important to the bride and groom and to the party. This is not the mission that my father has sent me to do. Jesus uses this word, our and my time, consistently through the gospel of John. I want to show you a place. In fact, I brought a list in case you want to write it down and read it about it later. John chapter 7. In verse 6, Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived. Later on in verse 8, because my time has not yet fully come. In verse 30, then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
But then there's a change sometime between John chapter 7 and 8 and John chapter 12. He says in verse 23 of chapter 12, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Down in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus is gathered in the upper room for what we know as the Last Supper. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So when you read the Gospel of John, he says, it's not my hour, it's not my hour, it's not my time. And then he says, it is my time. And it's always in the context of his suffering. Now it is my time to suffer. Now it's my time to be arrested and betrayed and beaten and ultimately crucified. Which is a good reminder to us today. Because I think the miracles that we want most from God, the power of God that we ask for most consistently is the equivalent of we've run out of wine, can you help us? And that is a real need. And it's important. But it is not the miracle of miracles. It is not the miracle that Jesus came to do. The miracle he was sent by God to do was to suffer on our behalf on the cross so that we could receive forgiveness of sins, so that we could receive eternal life, so that we can be reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to one another. This is the miracle of miracles. So you and I need to do some soul searching and some introspection to make sure that if we have a radical focus on Jesus, what that first stop is, is a radical focus on the cross. So before I get to my needs that are the equivalent of water into wine, I have first made a stop at, I recognize Jesus, what you primarily came to do which is to offer your life for my life. That is the first stop that I make when I think about Jesus. And therefore, when I see how much God loves me by sending his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. When I see you on the cross, then how much more faith do I have for my water to wine? But when we switch it, When we think about Jesus as primarily coming to meet my temporary needs, which this water into wine is important, but it's temporary. Then Jesus just becomes my version of whatever self-help thing is the latest trend. Jesus is my Cato diet. Jesus is my CrossFit. Jesus is my new way of organizing my thinking. Jesus is my new leadership book. Jesus is my new um, Marie Kondo, clean the house, say goodbye to the things. Thank the things for having been in your life for so long. (laughs) All of those things are good and they're helpful and they all help meet my temporary needs. That's why it's so important for us to not mix up why 
Jesus came. He believed his hour was the cross. And when we stop at the cross first, we have more holistic and more healthy faith for the temporary but important miracles like water into wine. My hour has not yet come, verse five, but look how Mary responds, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, he gave no indication to Mary that he was gonna help at all, did he? He essentially said, I'm not going to help you. And she says, you're gonna help me. (laughs) This is the gift of mothers, right? I don't care what you say. You're going to eventually do what I want you to do anyway. Think about the faith that she had in her son. And we don't know if she was thinking he was going to do something supernatural or he was just an um, intuitive and a good problem solver. But she knew that if I have entrusted this to him, that is enough. And then she walks away. Now think about what I might do or you might do. We might say, hey, you got this, do whatever he says. And then we'd walk away and go, hey, now I just want to just confirm with you, like this is super important, right? Yeah. And we would make a round uh, throughout the wedding, shake some hands, come back over, see if the pro- any progress had been made. No progress has been made. Let me give you a couple of ways that you might solve this problem. I've been thinking of it, but I just want to pass those on to you. But I'm asking you to do it, but really maybe I should do it. I'm not, are you going to do it? I mean, isn't that what, that, how we act? We will have a moment of clarity and prayer with God. God, I trust you for this. And then we commit it to him. But as fast as we've committed it to him, we commit it back to ourselves. Right? Just meditate on that thing that is concerning us, worrying us, that big unknown, that God, you got to work this out. There's no way to do this without you, but I'm going to stew on it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to try to fix it myself if at all possible. We need to adopt Mary's skill at doing what God has asked us to do. And then once we've done that, to be able to fully commit something to the Lord and trust him with it and walk away. It's incredibly hard because we are good meditators. The scripture tells us to meditate. That's hard for us spiritually, I think. I don't think that's something most of us are good at, but we are good at meditating. We think about things. We think about the things that worry us. And we just, we just wake up thinking about the things that worry us. But we need to learn from Mary. He is someone I can commit my problems to. I can get this off of my shoulders and onto his shoulders. I can trust him to be responsible for this. Now, just like Mary walked away without any guarantee Jesus was going to fix her problem, we will walk away without any guarantee that he will fix our problems as we have prescribed to him. But we can still trust him. So if you are currently concerned about something, have you done everything that God has asked you to do? And if so, shift the responsibility and do your best to walk away. That's what Mary does. Verse six. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So if you were hosting a a dinner party with other Jewish people, they believed that God was present there. At that dinner table, because they were the people of God, 
because they were sharing a meal together. It, it was holy. And if God was going to be present, then they need to, according to their laws, prepare themselves ritualistically. They need to clean themselves before God. And so there would be jars at the entrance of the house and they would wash their hands in a very specific way, not just for germs and cleanliness as we wash our hands, but in a religious way. And it was their way of saying that we are the clean people of God and what we are doing here is holy. And so they had these water jars at the feast. Now we don't know if they're empty because they did that at at day one of the feast and now they're on day four and they're just not worried about that or if they're empty because they had used the water and washed their hands already and now they were empty but we know they're empty we're going to come back to that in just a minute verse seven filled the jars with water jesus told them so they filled them to the brim now that makes a lot of sense to us because we know what happens that the servants would obey him and then fill the water all the way to the, the maximum. But they don't know Jesus yet. I, I, this is his first sign. So as of yet, he has done no miracles. It would be like my kids saying to me yesterday, will you go get us donuts? And I say, close your eyes and wait just a second. And I'm going to pray up some donuts. They would be like, no, get in your car and go and buy us some hot Shipley donuts, which I did yesterday. They were delicious. Church is over right now because they're still open. Let's just leave right now. Let's take a moment. Think about a hot Shipley's donut. My kids would look at me and say, you're crazy. The servants probably looked at Jesus and and said, you're crazy. They're they're out of wine. They don't need more water. We don't need to wash our hands anymore. We are the clean people of God. We've already done that. But they do it. They fill it to the brim. So not only do they do what he asked them, they do it to the maximum. They make sure that there is no room left for disobedience. They, they, they do it to the very edge that they possibly do it. Because this is the standard that Jesus invites all disciples to the maximum. To the disciples that he's collected so far in the gospel of John, just a few right now. He says, leave what you're doing, come and follow me. Leave your occupations. You're no longer fishermen, you're fishers of men. You're disciples now, you're going with me. To Matthew, the tax collector, he says, you're no longer a tax collector. You leave that occupation. To Zacchaeus, remember Zacchaeus leaves the interaction with Jesus and he comes out and he says, if I've ever stolen anyone from anything, I'm giving it all back and I'm giving more than I even need to give back. About the widow who gave her one coin, Jesus says she's put in more than all the rest because she gave all she had. To the rich young ruler, Jesus says you have a lot of things going for you. The one thing that you lack is to sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. When Jesus invites you to be a disciple, when Jesus invites you to obey, he invites you to fill it to the brim. And you are fill it to the brim people. It just may not be kingdom purposes that you are filling to the brim. You're a fill-it-to-the-brim sport parent. You're a fill-it-to-the-brim worker. You're a fill-it-to-the-brim internet researcher. You're a fill-it-to-the-brim Instagrammer. You're a fill-it-to-the-brim with your friends. You are a fill-it-to-the-brim purpose kind of person. We just need to stop and say, is, is it Jesus' kingdom first? And then whatever I have left over, I can give to these lesser pursuits. But they gave all the obedience there was to give. Verse eight, then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. 
He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. The head waiter says to the groom, who must have been the one responsible for bringing the wine to the party, hey, you've done this backwards. You gave out the mediocre stuff first, and then you saved the best for after they can't even taste things Anyway, they're already having a good time. You're not going to take them from a nine to a 10, right? I mean, why, why did you do this? This was backwards because he didn't understand what Jesus had done. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not um, a wine expert at all, but these are the most expensive wines ever sold. Um, I don't know this from, I, I Googled this. I am a good Googler, not a good wine drinker, but a good Googler. I can't pronounce any of those things, so I'm not going to say them, but uh, $300,000 for a bottle of wine, 1947, 1907, $275,000, 1869, $230,000, $1787, $225,000, $1811, $117,000. That's about the time the Baptist said no alcohol. Maybe they did it because of stewardship. They, it, it was, you know, wine was $117,000 back then. I mean, most of us will never own one of these bottles of wine, but imagine if you did, like that would be the only thing you were serving at that party, right? You wouldn't give that out ever after everybody was almost done and ready to go home. And the head waiter says to the groom, you've, this is what you've done. You've saved the best for last. This is backwards because nobody knew what Jesus had done except for the disciples and the servants. Verse 11 Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This sign was missed by most people at the wedding, but his disciples saw it. They understood him more and they believed in him more. And that's why John records this story for us today. So we will see it. So we'll understand Jesus more and we'll believe in him more. He revealed his glory. He reveals his glory by being who John said he was. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. That's how John starts his gospel at the end of chapter 1. Jesus says in verse 51, Then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's chapter 1. And here we see that coming to pass in chapter 2. Who has heaven anointed? Who is God working through? But his son Jesus at this wedding. How else could something like this happen? Water to wine. Jesus revealed his glory. He also reveals his glory by becoming our purification. Consistently, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law was what required you to wash your hands in a special way so that what you were doing was holy, so that you were holy. And consistently, Jesus says, I am replacement for the law. I am fulfillment of the law. The law is your tutor. It shows you that you need salvation, but I am that salvation. If you want to be clean before God and pure before him, you don't do it by washing your hands any longer. Something better and longer lasting has come. The miracle of miracles, the cross by which we are made clean. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, said, what should we do about our sin that is red like scarlet? 
God will wash it white as snow. How did he do that? By the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. That's why Jesus gave us the last supper. What we call the Lord's Supper, where he lifted up the cup. He said, this cup of the new covenant is made in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember Jesus' blood because it is what makes us pure before God. And we see his glory in the good gift that he gave this young couple. They didn't need that much wine. The party was probably almost over. So now moving forward in the early days of their marriage, they would have not just wine, but really good wine to serve their guests. Which I think is just like Jesus. He does the miracle of miracles. But he's also just able to be good in the everyday, ordinary journey of life. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. The reason they stayed in Capernaum only a few days is because they were headed to Jerusalem. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray.